Good morning, everyone. Uh, And today we're going all the way back to the book of Genesis in chapter 3. And so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and go there. Um, But before we get to chapter 3, I want to take a look back at what happened in the first two chapters, in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. So in chapter 1, God creates light and darkness, day and night, morning and evening, the sea, the sky, the earth, and the dry land. He creates plants and vegetation. He creates the sun, the moon, the stars, the creatures of the sea, the creatures of the earth. And then he makes the crown jewel of his creation when he makes mankind. And after all of this, he says, it's good. He then gives humanity a task to have dominion over all the living things on the earth. And God gives them one command in chapter 2. Eat of any tree, except of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God then institutes marriage between a man and a woman, and he tells them to be fruitful and to multiply the earth. And then on the seventh day, God rests. So in Scripture, everything is perfect for all of two chapters. Think about all the chapters in Scripture. Perfect for two chapters. That's it, right? So here's the recap. God creates everything. He creates man, he institutes marriage, he tells them to have kids, to have dominion over the earth, and don't eat of that one tree. And so, at this point, Adam and Eve are living in perfect communion with God. As a matter of fact, we see in our passage today, it says that God is walking in the garden. And I would submit that it probably isn't the first time that God walked in the garden. That there were probably many times where they had walks together in the garden. You see, for them, they lived in perfection, at least for a brief time. You and I have never experienced that. We don't know exactly what that looks like. We don't know what that feels like. But what we see in the garden is God's original design for humanity, that we walk in perfect relationship with him and worship him all the days of our lives. What we see in chapters 1 and 2 is a God that desires our worship, a God that loves us, and a God that gives us opportunity to choose him over other things. So everything that was done in chapters 1 and 2 quickly unravels in Genesis chapter 3, becomes undone. Everything that was done becomes undone. And so if this were a movie, that scene would end and a new scene would begin. And in chapter 3, it's a new scene. It takes place in the same location, but it even starts off by introducing a new character, which is kind of interesting. And so what we're going to do right now, I want to read Genesis chapter 3 with you, 1 through 24, uh, and then we'll pray together and dive in, all right? So follow along with me. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam... He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and, his, and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away, turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word. God, I pray that the truth it contains uh, is presented clearly this morning. God, that you use me to do that. And Lord, that you are exalted and glorified. God, I pray that this time is a time um, where your Word does what it can only do, God, that it can convict, that it can encourage, and that it can be um, exactly what we need uh, for this moment and this day. And so, um, God, we give this time to you. In your name I pray. Amen. And so this passage, I'm sure, is familiar. Uh, what we just read uh, is called the fall, you know, when sin entered the world. Realistically, it's when everything else became messed up. It's why we see the evil in the world around us that we do. It all stems from the first sin found here in Genesis chapter 3. And so this morning, I want to offer uh, some insight into the tactics of the evil one, the reaction of humanity, and the character of God, because I think we see all three. And so in verse 1, we're introduced to the enemy, the one who tempts us to sin. And so the first thing that we see in this passage is that sin begins with a common enemy, and that enemy is Satan. He's the tempter, okay? He's the tempter. And let's offer a little background here. What we can gather from Scripture is that Satan was one of God's angels, and at some point he tried to overthrow God. His pride got the best of him, and God, uh, he was thrown out of heaven himself. 
And while we don't know a ton of details or the exact time, the implication uh, here is that Satan rebelled against God sometime before this event happened in the garden. That's when uh, it would have occurred. And so in Genesis chapter 3, it says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. And so most believe that the serpent here is Satan in the form of a serpent. That said, there are some who question whether it really is. Uh, But both Paul and John in the New Testament refer to the ancient serpent as Satan. In Revelation 12, 9, John says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And then in Revelation 20, verse 2, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And so what we read here is that Satan takes the form of a serpent in this passage and he tempts Eve to disobedience. We know that when we are tempted, it's only by Satan because we read in Scripture uh, in James chapter 1, verse 13, where it says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so God never does the tempting. When we're tempted, it's by the evil one. And so the serpent described here uh, is Satan, and he is described as crafty. And so the idea here about him being crafty is that it means he was cunning, or he was skilled in being a deceiver, in, in deception, the art of deception. And so from our other knowledge of Scripture, we know that he's pretty skilled in that. He's actually wise in his own right and, and, and rather intelligent. As a matter of fact, he's very specific even on what target he chooses here when he tempts it first and when he chooses to tempt Eve. See, Satan's good at what he does. He's good at deception. He's very good at it. Luckily, the God we serve is better at what he does, which is bring us victory over sin which is crush the enemy. How good is Satan at the art of deception? Well, let's look at the passage. In this passage in Genesis chapter 3, it only takes two statements from Satan to cause Eve to reconsider, question, and doubt what God said. It takes two statements. He asks one question, he makes one statement, and that's it. And that was enough. In verse, in verse 1, he asks the question, did God actually say that? And then in verses 4 and 5, he makes this statement, you will not die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Two statements that he makes offset the balance of trust and obedience between the man and the woman and their creator. He's good at what he does. Took two statements. So, let's examine that strategy a little bit. What does he actually do? Because the same method that he used in the garden is the same method he used today. His methods don't change. And so here's what he does. The first thing that he does is he tries to make us question God's word. And so he'll take something that's in God's word and he'll twist it just enough to make us wonder if that's really what it means or if it's really true. And that's what he does here. And so in verse 1, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so he's questioning God's word and putting that seed in the mind of Eve. In this case, he asks if God really said something or if it's really sinful. He asks if God really says this, and he tries to make a second guess what God says. He then tells Eve in verse 4 the opposite of what God says. God says if you eat of it, you will die, and what Satan says here is no, you won't. 
God's not really saying that. That's not what he means. And he twists it and tries to get us to question what God says. You see, he quotes the command falsely as if it were a prohibition and not only uh, of that tree, but of all trees. See, he misquotes and misinterprets because that's what he does. And so here we see what he, his main goal is. He wants us to question God. He wants us to look at God's word and say, you know what? By the way, there is a healthy means of questioning God's word that would cause you to draw closer to him, to dive into his word more, but that's not what this is. This is getting somebody to the point where they truly believe that what it says isn't true. And so that's, what he, that's where he starts. And then we go to verse 4, and here's what he does. He convinces her that there wasn't any danger or harm in doing what it was that she had her eyes set on. See, he convinces her that there isn't any danger or harm in it. And so he makes Eve begin to question whether God's statement was true that they would die. When one supposes it's possible that there is any sort of falsehood in the word of God, it opens a door for disobedience. And so Satan teaches men first to doubt and then to deny. He says, you shall not surely die. That statement made by Satan is clearly a lie because it's contrary to what God said just a chapter before. And he suggested there was no danger in disobedience and rebellion. Does anybody find that ironic? The one that's already experienced the consequences and results of rebellion is trying to convince humanity that there are no harm in rebellion. The very thing that got him kicked out of heaven, he tries to convince us is okay. And that's what he does here. There's no consequence, is what he says. And then the third thing that he does is he makes us think that it actually benefits us. That we actually benefit from it. That, hey, not only is what he said not true, but if you do the exact opposite, it's going to be good for you. You're going to benefit from doing this. And so here's what he does. He says, your eyes will be open. You will have more power. And that idea there is that you'll have more power and pleasure than you have now. And then he says, you shall be as God, knowing good and evil. And here's the interesting part. He tells them that they will be like God. Guess what? God already told them they were like God because they were created in his image. But being like God in that way was apparently not good enough. And so he tells them, you're going to be like God in a way that you will be all-knowing. The serpent that had fallen and been kicked out of heaven because he tried to be like God and tried to be God takes that same trick and pushes that on humanity. If you do this, it will make you like God. It will make you greater than God. And so he's planning that idea in her head and trying to create his own followers ultimately. But here's the thing. Man's happiness and joy doesn't come from being like God, but from being with God. And there's a difference. It's being with God. It's being in relationship with God. It's walking with God. It's worshiping and loving the God that created you in his image. You see here, he makes her believe that what she currently has isn't enough. It isn't good enough. There's something greater out there, even though she's living in perfection. Tries to convince her there's something greater. 
and he makes her become discontent with her current situation. That's a trick in and of itself. If you can be convinced to be discontent in the grace and mercy and love that God's currently giving you to chase after something else that's only going to offer temporary satisfaction. That's what he's all about. See, they lost sight of the goodness of God in their lives, and at that point, at that point, and they believed because of Satan's comments that something better was out there. Satan is the father of lies. It tells us that in John chapter 8. And his lies always promise great benefits, but they never deliver. When he lies to us, he promises us something greater, and it falls short every time. But it's so enticing, is it not? See, Satan hates God so much that he can't stand to see people be obedient to him. He can't stand to see people walk in line with God and worship him. So he does whatever he can to turn people away from God. He sees a small opening or an insecurity, and he takes advantage of it. That's what he does. Anytime we give him a foothold, he takes it and runs with it. We have to be careful. And so Satan makes us question and then convinces us that doing the opposite is more beneficial to us than being obedient. And so sin enters the world when humanity is tempted by the evil one. That same tempter is alive and well today, and he seeks to tempt us by making us question the truth of God's word, by making it look like something out there is better, and that disobedience isn't harmful. And so by recognizing the strategy of the tempter, it should help us recognize when we're being tempted to the point where we can step back. Here's the second observation. This is the most obvious observation, a one you probably don't even need to write down. Eve and later Adam give in to temptation and commit the first sin. All right? You see, as humans, we can resist temptation for a short time. But it's impossible to resist it for very long without God. It's the strength that we have in God to help us withstand temptation. And at this time, um, the way that this is written, it almost appears as though Eve is alone, at least at the beginning of the conversation. Satan is very opportunistic. See, when we're alone is when we're most susceptible to give in to temptation. If you think about somebody that deals with a pornography addiction, when you're alone is the time that you're most susceptible to give in to that. And it works the same with plenty of other sins. We need to surround ourselves with believers and fill our mind with the word of God. And so while Satan was the tempter, there's one other thing that I think influences Eve here. It's something I think we can relate to. That tree was the one thing that was forbidden. Isn't that how it always works? The second somebody tells us not to do something, that's the one thing we want to do, is it not? That for whatever reason, that's the way that our mind works. So it's like, don't do this. Oh, well, now you got me really wanting to do that. Every single time. And I know it's that way with my kids whenever I tell them not to do something, because it only takes five seconds before they're doing that very thing. And that's exactly what it is here. So God gives her one, gives them both one thing not to do. And that makes it all the more enticing, because that's the one thing that's forbidden. It's the one thing that's forbidden for them. They have access to everything else that he's created, but it's that one thing. And so what was it that convinced Eve to give in? Let's look at verse 6. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And so here's what that looks like. Uh, she was convinced uh, because uh, she was convinced that it would appease her physical appetite. So the food, excuse me, the food was good, it, the tree was good for food. And so it was appeasing to the physical appetite. And then uh, it was also appeasing to the emotional appetite as it was delight, a delight to the eyes. See, Satan appeals to our senses and makes us desire things and covet things that we don't need. Things that look good on the outside that aren't always good for us. And so, so he appeals to that, to, to, to satisfy that emotional appetite. And then it says that uh, it's desi- to be desired to make one wise. And so uh, it is desirable for knowledge. And so that would be appeasing the intellectual appetite. And so uh, physically, this is appealing. Emotionally, this is appealing. Intellectually, this is appealing. So he appeals to all of these things and gives the idea that they will actually satisfy all of those things, which we know sin never satisfies the way that we think it will. So Satan makes things appealing to us physically, emotionally, intellectually. And as we read, we see that sometimes we ask others to share in sin with us. And so right here, as Eve gives some to Adam as well. See, Satan uses those with the greatest influence on us to tempt us to sin. And in one verse, Eve goes from sinner to tempter. In one verse. See, I'm not here to debate who sinned first. I'm not here to debate who's responsible. However, what we see with sin is that it's the opposite of God's original design. See, God, even in this moment, God had created Adam to be the leader. And in this moment, she takes his role and leads and he backs down instead of leading like he was created to do. They're both at fault. The fact of the matter is this. As a result of their sin, our perfect union with God is broken, and that sin now separates us from God. It hinders our relationship with him, and it leads to much pain and sorrow. And as a result of their sin, every human born after them is born into sin with a sin nature. In Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Sin enters the world through Adam and spreads to all men. See, one's capacity for sin is inborn. A person is a sinner before he has the opportunity to sin. R.C. Sproul put it this way, we aren't sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. And yet, if we never fully understand the depth of our sin, you can never fully understand the depth of God's love and God's grace. We have to understand the depth of our sin better than we normally do. See, this original sin is the beginning of a sinful humanity. It's the beginning of a completely broken world in need of restoration. See, we're filthy and we don't deserve God, but he loves us anyways. And so in light of their sin, the follow-up question is, how did they respond? Short answer, not well. (laughs) Short answer, not well. So here we go. Here's what they do. They avoid taking responsibility for their sin. That's what they do. 
And I think we can start to relate to this a little bit because I think we've all been there at some point in time where we did something we knew was wrong and tried to avoid taking responsibility. And there's some different strategies that they use here. And so they have a threefold response. The first thing they do in verse 7 is they cover their sin and their shame. Verse 7 says, Their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, their eyes being opened here is a reference to the eyes of their conscience. They were understanding now. They saw their shame. They realized something was different. They were overcome with shame, and this shame led them to recognize their current state. The nakedness is the one main thing they recognize as different at this exact moment. And so they try to cover it up as if nothing happened. They cover it because they're feeling shame. And so sowing the leaves was a means of trying to cover their sin and mask their shame. The thing about it is when we try to cover our tracks, we're not good at it. Just be honest. We're not good at covering our tracks, and guess what? It wouldn't matter if we are, because he already knows. And so they try to cover their sin and shame. The second thing they do is they hide from the presence of God. In verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so, uh, How often do we try to hide our sin from others or from God? We do that because we fear the consequences or we fear uh, that somebody's perspective of us is going to change in some way. But hiding our sin only causes more problems. It causes us to make up more lies or excuses to cover the original problem. I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one in the room that said this, but I tell this to my kids all the time and I've heard this so many times. You'll be in less trouble if you just tell me the truth, right? Like, if you just tell me the truth the first time, that's going to be less trouble than if you just continue to lie to me. It's going to end up building up. It's going to be worse. What's the benefit of hiding sin? If sin separates us from God, does hiding it change that? No. Does hiding it mean it didn't happen? No. Well, what's the benefit? What's the benefit? There isn't any, but what we do find out is that hiding it hinders our relationship with God. That's what we do find out. In Proverbs 28, 13, it says, If you hide your sins, you will not succeed. If you confess and reject them, you will receive mercy. And so I want to ask you to do this for a moment. Think of a game of hide and seek, all right? I'm not sure when the last time you played hide and seek was. Um, It's been Addy's go-to game lately, so we've played it a lot. Um, But think of a game of hide-and-seek. In a game of hide-and-seek, you're found in one of two ways. Either somebody finds you, or you rat yourself out. If you're stuck hiding for too long, you're afraid nobody's going to come get you, whatever, then you'll pop out so that they see you, and you'll out yourself in some way, or you'll just make noises. That's what Addie does. She'll, she'll, She'll talk the entire time. And it's like, child... I hear you. That's not the point of this game, right? And so in the game of hide and seek, you're found out in one of two ways. Somebody finds you or you give up yourself. Sin is much the same way. When you try to hide it, it's going to come out in one of two ways. Somebody else is going to find out or your guilt is going to become so overwhelming that you're going to bring it out yourself. That's it. 
It's going to reveal itself in some way or another because God says that it will not stay in darkness, but it will be brought to light. And so trying to hide sin is pointless. Your sin will find you out, Numbers 32, 23. Here's the third thing they do. They blame it on others. Oh, that's, that's something that we all did as kids, I guarantee it. If you had a sibling, you probably blamed some on them that you did. Um, I'm not going to explain any stories about myself with that, um, but I'll say I was at fault on several occasions, all right? And so they blame it on others. And so in verse 12, when God's speaking to them and he asks them questions, when he asks Adam, what's Adam do? Man, he blames, get this, not only Eve, but he blames God. The woman you gave me. Okay, now you're trying to pass the blame on several fronts. So he blames the woman, but he also blames God because God's the one who gave him that woman. And so Adam, once again, passes the blame. And then he blames God. It doesn't work out well to blame a pure, holy, and righteous God, by the way, for your faults. Ultimately, though, nobody forced Adam to eat it. That was his decision. And he should have taken responsibility, but he blamed others. Then you get to verse 13, and they talk to Eve. Eve doesn't take responsibility either. She blames the serpent. Well, guess what? While there is some validity to her statement as the serpent convinced her it was okay, the serpent, Satan, can only tempt. He can't force you to sin. He can't force you to make the decision to sin. He can only tempt you to do so. And so that's what happens here. And she blames the serpent. Yes, he was active in the tempting, but he could not force her to do it. It was her choice, and she did. Now, having a feeling of guilt isn't a bad response to sin, but guilt shouldn't lead us to cover it up, hide it, or blame others. Our guilt should lead us to repent and to seek forgiveness. That's what guilt should lead us to do. And the fourth thing that we see here, after looking at this, is we see that God's character is magnified. There are certain elements of God's character that we see clearly throughout this story, throughout this passage of Scripture. See, one of the things that we see is we see God's kindness in his gentleness. You see, he's walking in the garden. He's not chasing. He doesn't come in thunderously. He doesn't make this ginormous grand entrance so they recognize he's there. He's just walking in the garden. And you notice he asks them questions. He doesn't make accusations. He asks questions that lead them to confessing on their own, at least to what happened, even if they didn't take the blame. The other thing that we see is we see his love and his mercy, all right? And I want to explain uh, some of these a little bit deeper, all right? So we see his love and his mercy in several ways. One, in how he didn't kill them on the spot, because he said that the consequence would be death. He could have killed them right there. He chose not to. That was an act of love and mercy in that moment. And then he shows his love and mercy in how he speaks to coming victory over sin. You see, he offers them hope. And here it is. If you look in verse 15. See, there's many that believe that verse 15 is really the first mention of the gospel in Scripture. And it happens in chapter 3. And so it says that there will be enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And in John chapter 8, it says that some are children of Satan. And so this verse depicts a battle between Satan and his followers and God and his followers. And the verse then says, he shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. 
You see, the, 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 the offspring of Eve leads to Jesus down the line. And so here's this idea. It's suggesting that a redeemer will come, a savior will come, and he will bruise the head of the evil one. And it doesn't actually mean a bruise, but it means to destroy him with a fatal blow, to crush him and to be victorious over him. Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. See, Satan could only bruise his heel. He could only cause Jesus temporary pain and suffering that would eventually go away. And if you belong to Jesus, that's all he can cause you and me as well, is temporary pain and suffering. Because in Jesus' victory, we gain eternity. Even earlier in verse 14, it says, the serpent will eat dust all of his life. And the expression eat dust means total defeat. So it's the idea here. He's going to be defeated. And it's going to be complete and lacking nothing. And so this verse speaks of Jesus defeating sin. So we see Jesus' love, or God's love and mercy, and the fact that he even mentions and brings up the idea of a redeemer and a savior in Genesis chapter 3. And then he also does it in his, shows his love and mercy in his covering of them. You see, in verse 21, God makes garments of skin and clothes for them. And it's a reminder that only God can cover sin with the blood of Jesus. That only God can cover sin and that blood is the cost. And so even here, as an animal had to be killed to make those clothes, there was bloodshed. But God still cares for them. God is merciful on them by killing an animal for their sin instead of killing them for their sin. Interestingly, God had finished his work and rested on the seventh day. And this is the first thing that he does after the sin is he creates something else. By clothing them. So he goes back to work. We also see God's justice and mercy. And I'm aware that I included mercy in both of these. And the reason why is because I believe God shows mercy through both his love and his justice. He shows it both ways. See, here's where we see his justice, okay? You see, God showed his love by not killing him on the spot, but God cannot let sin go unpunished. He can't. He wouldn't be a just God if he let sin go unpunished. And so there are still consequences for their sin. And here's what those, those look like here, right? For Eve, it says there's going to be struggles in the marriage and there's going to be painful childbirth that we read about in verse 16. You see, God created marriage and children, and those were blessings that he had given to humanity in the previous chapters. He doesn't fully take them away, but what he does is say they're going to be way more difficult. And there's going to be pain involved in them. But he doesn't tell them to not consider them blessings. Because that's how they were presented when they were given to them in the beginning. For Adam, he would have to work the fields and experience the painful toil. It's interesting that when God addresses him, he calls him out for listening to his wife over the Lord. If you read that in verse 17. Because you listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree. God's saying, that marriage is important. You got to listen to me over that. That relationship is priority number one. It emphasizes that your relationship with the Lord and obedience to him is first, even over your marriage. He then tells them that he shall return to dust. In other words, there will be physical death that will be involved. 
And then how else do we see his justice and mercy? Consider the end of chapter 3. God removes them from the garden and puts a guard in front of the tree of life. Here's why. It's another act of mercy. Because if man would have eaten from the tree of life, he would have obtained eternal physical life. But it would have been in a sinful state. God did not want that to happen. He couldn't allow them to live forever in a sinful state. And so he closed that opportunity off. He cut off access to it and mentions Jesus several verses before without using the word Jesus. See, the character we see of our God throughout the fall should be encouraging to us. Our God never changes, thus his character and his essence never change. That's good news for us. Even in our own sin, we can see God's kindness, his love, his justice, and his mercy. And so in light of this common enemy, our propensity to sin, and the glorious character of our awesome God, what should our response be to sin? How do we respond? These are going to move through quick, all right? Number one, hopefully we will begin to recognize Satan's tactics. The things that he does, the way he twists God's word, the way he lies about things. If you're ever questioning whether something is true to Scripture, go to Scripture. We're called to repent of our sin and turn away from it. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then we're called to receive God's forgiveness and mercy by way of his earthly consequences. See, the ultimate consequence for sin is death, and anything less than immediate death is a show of God's mercy. The earthly consequences we receive are an act of mercy. I've never viewed them that way, but I'd like to start. See, in every sin, there's a tempter. There's the one being tempted, and there's a God who shows grace, mercy, and love throughout the whole thing. Sin changes everything except the God we serve. He's consistent. He's constant. His character never changes. I want to ask you to bow with me as we close. And I want to challenge you this morning to do this. I want to challenge you to bring to light any hidden sin issue that you're dealing with. And what bring to light could mean is literally taking it to God and stop trying to hide it. It could mean sharing it with a close friend. It could mean going to someone you've sinned against that doesn't even know about it and seeking their forgiveness. But bring to light any hidden sin you're dealing with. Because getting your sin out in the open releases guilt and enables repentance and forgiveness. It also enables us to get the help we need and to bring resolution to the situation. I want to challenge you to see God's mercy and God's grace and love in the middle of your sin and to remember that even though sin changed the world, the God of this world remains the same. If you're here and you've never given your life to Christ and never chosen to give your life to him, now is the time to do that. See, we read today about how God is victorious over Satan and sin. It's an opportunity this morning for you to be a part of that victory. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love to have you be a part of our family. So during this time, I'd ask that you pray. Spend some time in prayer. If you want to stand and sing in a moment, feel free to do that. Um, 
Uh, let me pray for us, and then I'll be up here if anybody wants to talk or pray. Lord God, thank you for this chance. Thank you for your word. Lord God, I pray that uh, we begin to recognize how incredibly good you are to us, God, in light of how incredibly filthy we are. God, allow us to have an accurate view of ourselves and an accurate view of you. And God, to remember your faithfulness to us every step of the way. God, I pray that this morning your word will be used to glorify your name. In your name I pray. Amen.